I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to chapter 2, verse 3. This is the creation of man and then the seventh day. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of God. So in the six days of God's creation work, we have seen that God speaks, God sees, God separates, and God names. And here on the sixth day, after creating the land animals, God repeats this familiar pattern. God speaks and creates man by the power of his word. God separates, that is, he, he puts man precisely in the place that he wants him. Not just on earth, but Moses tells us in chapter 2, verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. As with the other living creatures, God blesses man, telling him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And after creating man, God sees that his whole creation is very good. He is pleased and glorified by what he has created. Out of nothing, he has formed a temple and filled it with worshipers. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. If you want to follow along on the sermon outline that I provided for you, you can go ahead and read that sermon theme, and you're looking at an outline that should be five sermons, but is only one. So buckle in, we're going to cover a lot today. Now, there are four important things that God says in the creation of man on the sixth day, and uh, they were not only important then as God spoke them in creation, but they're even more important to us now, today, in our generations. They are those things that I said in our summary sermon are, are foundational that we need to go back to for answers, for, for, for granite to stand on in the truths that we believe given to us by God. They provide the foundation with which we find answers to the most important questions that we're faced with in our lives even now. What does it mean for us to have dominion over all creation? Does it mean we can have a great big party and trash the place without consequences? 
Or does it mean we're to be careful stewards of it? What exactly has God called us to do? Another question, what does it mean for us to be created male and female? Is gender a social construct created by man himself? Is gender something each individual person can make up for themselves? Or is gender somehow tied to the nature of being created by God? Are male and female merely biological distinctions? Or does God have something to say about his image bearers? What does it mean that we are created in the image of God and after his likeness? Does that affect our understanding of gender? Does that inform us about who we are? Does that instruct us about who we are, how we are to live? Does it affect the way that we relate to other people or to God himself? Does it matter that God speaks? These four things are necessarily linked to one another. And they can't be unlinked. They can't be unlinked. These four things that he says in the creation of man. You cannot say how we relate to the earth and plants and animals is not important. You cannot say how we understand gender is not important. You cannot say that being made in the image of God is not important because you cannot say that it's not important that God speaks. You see, if God does not speak, then image and gender and dominion are meaningless. If God has not spoken, then we are not created in the image of God. If God has not spoken, then we are not created male and female. If God has not spoken, then we are merely partners with the birds and the fish to somehow keep this planet going. That is not to say that unbelievers are not humanity. It is to say they are not authentic humanity. Authentic humanity comes from God in the ordering of his humanity and creation. There are two ways to approach the sixth day here. One is by faith in God's word and in obedience to his ordering of creation. The second is to deny that God has spoken and just believe lies, the lies of other voices or the lies of the voice in your head. One is authentic humanity, certain of its origins, hearing the author of life. The other is fallen humanity hearing the serpent's voice, rejecting the creation order, falling in line with the rest of our generation. Aren't these four statements the very battleground for faith in God and truth for a flourishing and authentic humanity? Aren't they? Aren't they the ones that are in our face today? Well, let's look at these four statements beginning with God's speech in the creation of man on the sixth day. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. You know, on the sixth day, you can just tell by looking at the the print on the page. On the sixth day, God speaks more words than any of the other days. And he goes on into chapter two to actually say more about the creation of man. And this is a clue. God made us to communicate with us. 
to commune with us. I would use the word fellowship, to fellowship with us based on his word and based on his spirit. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God communicates life to Adam face to face by the Spirit. And he continues to commune with man throughout his entire Bible, the Scriptures. Do you remember? You remember when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness? And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So when God breathes life into Adam, he communicates life to Adam for the purpose of our living fellowship with God. In John chapter 6, Jesus is telling his followers to to feed on him and and, and, uh, the bread of life. And many find this very mysterious and it's a little little tough. And then Jesus says in John chapter 6 verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's what's happening with God breathing life into Adam at creation. When the serpent, think about this, when the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 attacks, what does he attack? He attacks the word of God. God did not actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. That's twisting the word of God, and, and it's an attack on the word of God. You will not surely die. You'll be like God. That's the lie intended to replace God's speaking. You see? You will either believe that God has spoken, or you will believe lies. Lies you hear from other voices, or lies you make up yourself. Lies about gender, lies about marriage, lies about life. But God has spoken, and he has much to say to us as we fellowship with him in Christ. You know, God delights in his fellowship with you. Did you know that? With me? God delights in his fellowship with you. We know this because of the way he speaks about man. Before God creates man, did you notice? He deliberates. He deliberates. Before he speaks life into man, he speaks about mankind to himself. There's a little Trinitarian powwow. And God just thinks about it for a moment. Before he speaks that, he says, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. Yes. Like that. God speaks to himself. There is this Trinitarian agreement and delight in the creation of men and women, unlike anything else that God has created. God loves to fellowship with you. He made you for this fellowship. The way God creates everything, by speaking his word, demonstrates his authority over it. Agreed? 
The way God creates mankind, by deliberating before speaking, demonstrates his authority and his affection for you. I think it's the affection part that's often missing in our understanding here. Which means, if we were created for fellowship with God, then we will only be truly satisfied by fellowship with God. Not by food, not by sex, not by money, not by power, nor any created thing. We have been created body and soul for fellowship with God. Now I want to build on this idea that God has an affection for us. That God is just for us. Because I think the text does so. In day six, God's speech reveals a super concentration of his will for man, of his will for us. God expresses his will in creative speech. For example, his command, let there be light on day one, is an expression of his will. But on day six, in the creation of man, God expresses more will, greater will, a a powerful concentration of his will for man. He expresses his will in his command to make man. His creative will is expressed in greater detail for us to be made in the image of man and woman. He expresses his will in his command for us to have dominion over everything else that he has created. He expresses his will in his command for us to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. He expresses his will in his provision for all vegetation to be our food and for us not to be the food of the animals that he's made. They get to eat plants too. See, God has a will for all creation, but his will for us is far greater and more concentrated. God's purpose for fellowship with us, his delight in fellowship with us, is an expression of his sovereign will over us and for us. We would say he's invested in the relationship. God speaks. God speaks. When people don't listen, they believe lies. And the biggest lie that they believe, I think, is that God is not for us. When people do not listen to God, they believe lies. God has spoken. He tells us who we are, created in his image, male and female. He tells us how we are to live in fellowship with him. And for the sake of this fellowship, Jesus, the perfect and exact image of God, became like us and walked among us. God spoke to us in his Son so that we would listen to the truth about our sin and listen to the love of God expressed by the will of God for us in Christ, our Redeemer. So first, the foundational link is that God speaks. God speaks. It's the anchor. The second link in the text is that God creates man in his own image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? The other living things are created how? After their kind. 
after their kind. But we are created after God's kind. We're given greater dignity than the animals. We're made for more. Authentic humanity is created in the likeness of God. Which implies, one, an identity, and two, an obligation. Both who we are and how we are to live. You are the image of God, and you shall bear his image. Authentic humanity is passionate for human life for this very reason. It's why we mourn the loss of the unborn. It's why we pray for babies in the womb. It's why we care for the elderly, even if they have Alzheimer's. It's why we sit by the bedside of those who are sick and those who are dying. It's why we help those with disabilities. See, our generation no longer hears the words in the image of God. And as a result, life is cheap. But the authentic human life hears these words and lives by these words. All humans are created in the image of God. Even after the fall. Even after the fall, when Adam sought to be like God on his own terms, not on God's terms, we still bear the image of God. It's marred. It's blurred. It's a little cracked and broken, but it is still human. It's just no longer authentically human, as in creation. So how are we to understand sinners as being in the image of God? Well, let me, let me mention four ways. First, you have a soul. You have a soul. As a spiritual being, God created you a spiritual being, you have a soul. An animal is just a living body. But you have a living body and a living soul. When God breathed life into you, as he did Adam, he breathed physical and spiritual life into you. So you're not just to satisfy your body, which would include your mind, but you're to live to satisfy your soul. No matter how broken your body is or how broken your mind is, our souls fellowship with God in the spiritual realm. So we are like God in a spiritual way. Second, you have a heart. Now, I don't mean your physical heart muscle that pumps blood. I mean the, the, the way the Bible uses the word heart. The heart is the center of your being. It, it, it mediates body and soul together. Animals operate by instinct, but you operate by a heart, a control center over your entire being, your will, your reason, your mind, your affections. You see, our generation doesn't hear God's word in their heart. And what are they left to think and reason and make decisions with? Their appetites. Their appetites. They say, do what you feel. Do what you want. Do what glorifies you. They're not listening to God. They're listening to their appetites. 
self-actualization and self-esteem and self-fulfillment. They're hollering at you every day, aren't they? But they will never be truly satisfied without God who created them for fellowship with Him. No word, no heart, no capacity to live in the image of God. Third, you have a sense of virtue. God has placed the natural law within the hearts even of sinners. Everybody. That is why when we're recreated in Christ, by the way, that we're recreated in the knowledge and the righteousness and the holiness of God, the Bible tells us. The desire to do the natural uh, law that's written on our hearts. Because every man has a sense of justice. Believers long for justice. They just don't long for God's justice or justice as seen in the eyes of God. Our generation seeks a justice, it's just it's a justice that's in their own eyes. They make laws and accusations based on what feeds their own appetites. They serve justice that conforms to their image rather than justice that conforms to the image of God. It's not that our generation says there is no right way. It's just that they say the right way is not God's way. It's why judges make laws about same-sex marriage. It's why elected leaders make laws that no so-called transgender children uh, or transgender children can't obtain drugs and surgeries to conform to their new gender identity. It's why the killing of babies in the womb is legal and will continue to be legal for a foreseeable future even if Roe versus Wade and Doe are overturned. Our generation is described by Paul in Romans chapter 1. You know the chapter. We know God, but we suppress our hearing of his word. And so we become whatever our appetites desire. It is a form of humanity, fallen humanity, but it's not authentic humanity. And then lastly, our body is a part of being created in the image of God. And you say, wait, what? Our body? Wait, that's physical. How are our bodies part of being created in the image of God? Well, the image of God was given to the whole man, wasn't it? Assigned to the whole man, body and soul. That's why, that's why a murderer is to be put to death. After the flood, God says to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. A murderer doesn't kill the spirit. He only kills the body. So in some sense, even the body belongs to the image of God. The body alone is not a person. It's a vessel created by God. Your body is not only the dwelling place of your soul. Your body is the dwelling place of God. When you come to saving faith in Christ, your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. In addition to that, it is with your body that you serve God. One theologian explains it this way. Your soul peers out of your eyes. Okay, Your soul peers out of your eyes. Now when you look into your dog's eyes, it can be a beautiful thing. But no living soul is peering back at you. 
When you look into the eyes of another person, a living soul is peering back at you. It's certainly not that our bodies are perfect. Many of our bodies are broken. But Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that our bodies sown in weakness will be raised up in glory. We're all very weak. But that does not take away from the fact that we are created in the image of God. It shifts our attention instead to Christ who will restore the image of God in us in power and in glory. The next statement is that God creates man, male and female. So God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Now, now the moment we hear God speak those words, the moment I read those words, that God created mankind, male and female, we automatically reject our generation's view of gender. Automatically. We reject that gender is a matter of choice or preference. We reject that gender is merely a matter of psychological orientation or physical presentation. We hold that gender is binary, and we reject that it is fluid. God has created us, male and female. One theologian suggests the term diamorphic instead of binary. I think it's a good idea. Binary is a mathematical term, right? It, it wasn't Christians that came up with this. Oh, that's that dreaded gender binary. It's a cold mathematical term, like a, like a computer cold, right? On, off, on, off, on, off. Intended to make us feel as if male and female is somehow a cold calculation. Diamorphic is a biological term. It's talking about the same thing, but in biological terms that better reflect why we observe God's creation order. I mean, we are supposed to follow the science, right? When we choose to. Look at the disordering of society, the confusion that lies have stirred in our thinking in our generation. Confusion in our schools about which bathroom to go to. Confusion in our government about which gender box to check on your application. Confusion in athletics, of all things, about crowning males as champions in women's sports. Confusion in our language about what pronoun to use. Confusion in the minds of young children who are encouraged to choose their own gender orientation. Confusion in healthcare as doctors offer those same children drugs and surgeries in what will be a failed attempt to bring about their new gender. You know, there are some actual medical cases of physical confusion of gender, but those are a matter of health, not morality. That's a completely different category. The question is, what do you think? Gender is a part of the world that God created, and because God created, it cannot be my personal preference. It's not my choice. So, do you believe what God says about gender? Or, 
Will you listen to another voice like Eve did? Will you be conditioned by the voice of your confused generation? Let's think. Let's think just for a minute about a couple of things. First, being created male and female is moral. It's not merely material. You would be told it's merely material. No, it's moral. It's about responding to God and being and doing what God says. Think about sex within the marriage relationship. When God creates Adam and says he is alone in the context of creation, God is not saying that Adam is lonely. He's saying that Adam is alone. Adam is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but he's alone. You see? It's not just biological, it's moral. Second, maleness and femaleness is given by God. It's not man-made, nor culturally imposed upon us. Mankind, male and female, is universal for all humanity. Not just Christians, all creatures, right? There simply is no compromising with the sovereign creator God on this issue. Third, God's created order stands. It stands. If our generation rejects God's order, the order still stands. It's like playing make-believe. You can say there is no gender binary, but there still is a gender binary. When people reject God's order, it does not result in the destruction of that order. It results in the judgment of those people. The order is still true. But those who reject the order have opened themselves up to judgment. And we're back to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, what is it that stirs the judgment of God? It is particularly sexuality wrongly expressed against God's created order. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for that that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give hearty approval to those who practice them. What does God do with generations that abandon his creation ordinances? He abandons them to their sin. That is the generation in which we live. We live in a society that is collapsing. Now, think on this. There is always available God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is always Available, God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes all things new. 
we are not called to reform the generation. We are called to point people to Jesus. Paul writes to the church in the sexually immoral city of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, not men who practice homosexuality, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, we who were sinners, even sexual sinners, have been washed by the Word and the Spirit. And we need to proclaim the gospel call to sinners to repent and receive this grace of God in Christ. They're not listening to God speak. But we've been called to tell them the good news that's found in Titus Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we need to hear God speak. And we need to speak the gospel of grace in our generation. That is our great commission in the New Testament, isn't it? You're familiar with that. And, and in a way, there is a great commission in, in the Old Testament. We'll look at our last, last point here. God gives man dominion. And God said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping, it's not, it's not creepy thing, it's creeping things, it's little animals instead of the big animals that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now this is referred to as the creation mandate. It's sort of like a great commission in the Old Testament. We're commissioned to serve God, male and female, by filling the earth and having dominion over it. We need to look at a couple of words so we don't get the wrong idea about dominion. So dominion is not pure domination. We have not been given permission to do whatever we want with creation and to selfishly ruin it. Dominion means to rule. We've been given rule. It's a royal function. And it's applied to both Adam and Eve. Subdue does not mean to beat into submission. It means to, it means to bring under control. Bring this under your control. Take possession of what God has given you. This is the order when, when they cross into the promised land, to take possession of the land that God has given them. So, so Adam and Eve are God's royal co-workers. They're to make the whole world like the garden. Adam himself doesn't fill the whole world. He needs a woman. Adam and Eve together still don't fill the whole world. They need children. So be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve have a kingly role to rule over the creation, but they also have a, a priestly role 
to fill that creation with the knowledge of God. And if they had done it, we would not need the Great Commission in the New Testament. We wouldn't need Jesus Christ, the second Adam. But Jesus succeeds where the first Adam failed as our king and as our priest. God provided Adam and Eve everything they needed to fulfill his purposes for them. Here's what we learn about God on the sixth day. God gives what he commands. God gives what he commands. As he gives his purpose for his glory, he gives creation and dominion. Adam and Eve have everything they need to do what God has called them to do. God blessed Adam and Eve to do the things he called them to do. He gives what he commands. What a gracious God. So marriage was not just for companionship. It was not just for sex and procreation. Marriage was for the glory of God. Marriage is for us to serve God to his glory. At the end of the sixth day of creation, God saw everything that he had made and beheld, and it was very good. That creation revealed God's perfect knowledge of all things at all times. Its beauty was the expression of his will and of his delight. It exalted his glory, and we wrecked it. Adam failed. He stopped listening to God the moment he stopped guarding the garden and let the snake in. He failed as king. He stopped listening to God and started listening to the snake. He failed as priest. Adam blamed Eve. They lost fellowship with God. And within the first generation of their children, their children began murdering one another. Tending the garden becomes difficult and multiplying becomes painful. And so we're left asking, Is there no man that can carry out God's purpose? Is there no man available who can bring about God's glory? Yes, there is one man. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all serve one source. Yes, 
There is exactly one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who brings about God's perfect plan from creation. He is the Word, by Word of God, by whom we were created, male and female. He's the second Adam, who is our perfect king and priest, who rules in our hearts and through his church. He's the Word of God. Listen to him, and don't live by lies, and you will be blessed. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. <clears throat> now, you know, that feels a little bit like we have come to a real natural conclusion of the sermon. But we haven't come to the actual conclusion of the sermon. Just a few more minutes. Here's why I think we feel that this is a good ending spot. If I were to ask you how many days did it take God to create the earth, you'd say six. God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, right? And if I were to ask you what is then the pinnacle of God's creation, you would say man. And that's right. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation work. When we think of creation as six days, we land on man as the pinnacle of God's creation. And that is a natural stopping point. And it, well, it makes us feel a little bit important too, doesn't it? But when we think of creation as a seven-day week, we land on a completely different pinnacle. The emphasis of creation is on something else entirely when we look at the full seven-day week. The pinnacle of creation becomes God's communing with man in rest. It's entirely different, isn't it? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You know, the seventh day which God rested is, is called the Sabbath. And in the Gospels, Jesus tells us two important things about the Sabbath. One, he says that the Sabbath is made for man. The Sabbath is made for man. Two, he says that he himself is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, which was made for Man. And with that in mind, let's answer, let's answer just three questions about the Sabbath day. They're the things we find in the text. They're, they're, they're circled around the words rested and, uh, and blessed and holiness or sanctified, depending on your, your translation. What does it mean then that God rested? I mean, the first thing we notice is that God is finished with the work of creation. And redundantly so, Right? The heavens and earth were finished. All the hosts of them were finished. God was finished. And the work God had done was finished. The unmistakable point that Moses is making in writing this is that the work of creating is done, right? That's, that's the emphasis. It's like, it's like seven exclamation points. It's finished. 
Well, does that mean that God has stopped working altogether? I mean, it is the word rest. Is he completely inactive? Like I hope to be later this afternoon, just for maybe an hour or two on the couch? No. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, my father is always working. He's working even until now, and I'm working too. It's as if God has built the factory, installed the equipment, and hired the workers, and now the plant is beginning normal operations. That's what this is like. That's what this word rest means. We're taping up normal function now. God has ceased his creation work of forming and filling, and now he's just going on to do his, his normal work, now that everything's in place. This would have made total sense to Moses' first readers. Remember Israel? Uh, there on the banks of the Jordan looking for some encouragement as they prepare to subdue and take control of the land that God has promised to them? When one of their mythological gods, the nations there, or, or a real king in history for that matter, would build his house or temple, they would then move into that temple and rest there. This idea. That is that they would inhabit their house, which means beginning normal household operations. And the Israelites see their God creating and inhabiting the whole earth, including the land that he's promised them. Do you see how that's encouraging to them? Do you see how that could be encouraging to you? Psalm 132 says, Oh, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. He's taking up normal operations. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. So on the seventh day, God took up his reign in his temple and set man to work in their kingly and priestly roles. But what does it mean that God blessed the day? I mean, usually in Scripture, God blesses people. We're used to seeing that. What does it mean for God to bless the day? Well, I think it means that God gives this day a function in verse 3. This day functions as a recognition of God's work in creation. It is a day for man to see that God is good and that all of his work is very good. If we go back to the factory analogy, it's kind of like it's the ribbon-cutting ceremony okay, for the opening of the factory. And you know, they're going to wait for the, for the first widget to roll off the assembly line and, and say, yay. And in this way, the Sabbath is made for man. To see and acknowledge and be thankful for the blessings of God. That's how the Sabbath is made for man. You know, there's an event, uh, an even more direct way that God blesses man with the Sabbath in Isaiah chapter 58, beginning of verse 13. Isaiah's prophesying of the Sabbath, and he says, If you turn uh, turn back your foot from the Sabbath from going and doing pleasure on your old way. In other words, they're they're sinning. They're walking away from the Sabbath. If they would turn from that and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day 
of the Lord, honorable, if you would honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, with the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, if, if you would rest in God and worship him on the Sabbath, be devoted to him in this rest, do these things. You will delight in the Lord himself. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that make sense? Put it this way. Make an analogy this way. Someone who doesn't think going to church and worshiping God is very important doesn't think God is very important. Someone who thinks it's drudgery and, and just a problem and would like to skip out in church on, on worshiping Jesus probably thinks that Jesus is drudgery and really not worth their time. Do you see the connection? That's the connection made here in, in Isaiah. If you would turn from glorifying yourself and glorify God, you would find yourself then delighting in God. You see, the purpose of the Sabbath is to turn our hearts to God. It's to turn our affections to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we would gather and delight in the worship of God, we would delight in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The ultimate rest that we receive from God is in Christ. We rest in him for the forgiveness of our sins, and we rest in him for the eternal life that he gives, and we rest in him by faith in his creation, which will one day become sight in the new creation, yet to come. What is the greatest blessing that we've received from God? It's Christ. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and we receive every spiritual blessing in Him, the Lord of the Sabbath. The work that God is doing now is blessing His people. So what does it mean that God made the day holy? Or your translation may say sanctified. Well, God has taken up residence in his temple. He has blessed man with a day, blessed to his fellowship with man. And God makes that day holy. To make holy is to, is to set apart for special use, right? God sets the seventh day apart from the other six days to special use. And we see it right here in the texts. Days, days one through six are work days. Day seven is set apart for resting and blessing. Also, at the end of days 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, we read, and there was evening and there was morning, to mark the end of each day. But those words are purposefully missing from the seventh day, aren't they? Is there a literal end to the seventh day? Yes. Saturday ends, and each new week begins with a brand new Sunday. But... There is a theological sense in which the Sabbath day of rest does not end. We continue to rest in Christ, to rest in the salvation that is the result of his finished work, to be blessed in constant and eternal fellowship with God, the reason for which God speaks to us in the first place. Under the old covenant, God set the Sabbath day on the seventh day to remember him and his creation and to rest in him. Israel worshiped God, worshiped God on Saturday. Under the new covenant, when God spoke to us in his son, his word, 
Jesus himself changed our day of worship to the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day. How did he do that? By his resurrection from the dead on the first day. The Sabbath principle of looking to worshiping God and resting in God and honoring creation is maintained, but the focus changes. We no longer look back from the end day of the week. We now, from the first day of the week, look forward to the creation yet to come. Which means there's more to life than this world. For living souls created in the image of God. You see how the pinnacle of the seventh day of the creation week is not man, but God? It was really unfair of me to ruin a perfectly good ending to a slightly shorter sermon by adding the seventh day. I realized that. But we would have missed this emphasis on God from the very beginning of creation. It's, a, it's, it's an emphasis on God that begins at creation and it remains for eternity, which means it's in effect now. All of life is focused on Christ. All of life is focused on God. All of life is to be lived in fellowship with God, in service to God, in Christ, and for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the gift of life. Lord, we praise you. We're in awe of you. Our creator God. Our good God. We're thankful to you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Where we miserably failed, he has succeeded. The creation that we have marred and ruined, he will restore. And so we praise you in his name. The name of Christ. Amen.